You're listening to the Table Church Podcast. The Table is a community in Orville, California that aims to follow Jesus by doing what he did. Love God, love our neighbors, and serve those in need. Find us at thetablechurch.net, Instagram, or Facebook. And now for the message. You can tell we're three weeks deep. This is the third week into a sermon series called Ship Shape. We're talking about the ships of life. Uh, that we need to get in order in our life to make sure that our life is steady. It is uh, watertight. It allows us to travel this sea of life in a way that is healthy and helpful, and it gets us to where God wants us to go. As always, the time for questions and answers at the end. There's the cell phone number. It'll be at the bottom uh, if you want to text that. Any questions that arise, please do. Wi-Fi password right there. It's The Table Church is the Wi-Fi, and the password is Love Thermalito, capital L, capital T. But like I said, ship shape, the ships of life, talking about these things that we need to listen to, that we need to shore up, that we need to make sure are steady. Here's the ones that we're, we're talking about. Discipleship, we did first week, hardship last week, worship, leadership, relationship, stewardship, and workmanship, which is the one we'll be doing today. But if you didn't see that quote fully in the video, it's this idea that all water in the ocean, all the water in the ocean cannot sink a ship unless it gets inside, nor all the trouble in the world harm us unless it gets within us, which is especially poignant for last week with hardship, that hardships are an absolute inevitable, but they don't have to get within us, right? They don't have to get within us. Like I said, today we are talking about workmanship. Sorry, the word man is in there. I wanted to do workership, and the whole time, uh, keynote and word was like, that's not a word. And I was like, so um, forgive me, but uh, I I have to have the word ship in there. Otherwise, the whole sermon series falls apart. And so uh, here's what I'd love for you to do at this moment. Turn to someone next to you. Maybe you came with them, maybe you didn't, and just tell them the most fun job you've ever had. It's the most fun job. You go ahead. You could talk. <laughs> go for it. Hey, you guys did pretty good. Uh, I, w- I don't want to hear what your job was. I want to hear if someone, if your neighbor had a really fun job, what was it? Like, what was surprising about it? What was cool about it? Working at a jail. Working at a jail? <laughs> That's awesome. Like, on the crew or, like, for the crew? <laughs> what? <laughs> Anybody else? Did your neighbor have a cool job? Oh, that's right. Worked at the buckle in the mall. <laughs> you also met like a UFC fighter, right? Ken Shamrock. Oh my goodness. Anybody else? One more. Paid to lay by a pool. They paid me to go away from the pool. They were like, can you, you're really bringing the whole vibe down here. Work, working is a necessary part of our lives. It's like a third of our lives, a third of our waking lives at least, unless you're American, then you actually probably work more on average. Um, and so how do we face it and how do we deal with it? We have to have a good theology of work. And I know as soon as I say theology of work, you're like, oh no. But we have to think about work deeply if we're not going to let it sink our ship that we have this thing called life. Here's our bad news. Always start with the bad news. It comes from the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1, 2, and 3. 
uh, it goes like this. Genesis 1, God creates the heavens and the earth, and, and you have the days, and maybe you know the story that day one, these things are created, and day two, these things are created. And, and then on the sixth day, God creates humanity in God's own image. And I always say this, and this isn't necessarily part of the sermon, but God's first word to us is always closeness. It's always relationship. It's always this thing called covenant. It's always connection. And then God's second word to us is always challenge. It's always kingdom. It's always uh, action-oriented. So the first word to us is that God creates us in God's own image and likeness, that we are like God, that we have a divine spark in us, and it is good. And then the second thing that God says is that we need to be fertile, fruitful, and multiply. Fill the earth, master it, take charge of it, subdue it, these types of things. This is the beginning part of this whole thing. There's connection to God, and there's also a a kingdom challenge here. Uh, Genesis chapter 2 takes this creation story, goes a little bit deeper, adds some different details. Um, But it says, on the, the day that the Lord made the earth and the sky, seven, the Lord formed a human from the topsoil blew life's breath into his nostrils. The human came to life. Then it tells you, chapter 8, that the Lord planted a garden, and it was beautiful, and some of the trees there were just good to look at. Like some of creation is just beautiful. And then there's a bunch of verses about how there's like four awesome rivers. Um, I'll let you read it. Uh, I'm going to skip over that. But trust me, those rivers, pristine. And then 15... Uh, the Lord God took the human and settled him in the Garden of Eden to farm it and to take care of it. So our, already we have this idea of work right away. Uh, first we see God working. God does all the work. And then God rests. And then even in the second chapter, we see God's the one who plants the garden and makes beautiful things grow. And then invites human beings to be in the middle of it and to help take part of it. And it is good. It's good, which we'll get to in just a minute. But chapter 3 is what's traditionally known as the fall. There's the eating of the fruit. There's the rebellion against God. There's the, 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 the knowledge of the tree of good and evil and whatever it is. And uh, I get my words confused when I'm up here sometimes. And so the, you know the whole story happens and God looks for them and they get, they hide themselves away from God. And then this curse comes and there's three curses, one for the man, one for the woman, and one for the creature, the serpent, and the curse goes like this as far as work goes. One of it is is that uh, women, uh, childbearing is just going to be extra difficult, so okay. Um, But the other curse is that uh, cursed is the fertile land because of you. In pain, you'll eat from it every day of your life. Weeds and thistles will grow for you even as you eat the field's plants. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread until you return to the fertile land. Since from it you were taken, you are soil, and to the soil you will return. Or you are dust, and to the dust you shall return. This is what God says happens after we broke this good creation by our own rebellion uh, in the system. And the bad news in all of this about work is that your work is going to be frustrated. And you're like, I just sat through five minutes for you to tell me that work is frustrating. I could have told you that 15 years ago, bro. <laughs> like, work. But what creation, the creation narrative tells us is that our work is frustrated. You are going to put in more than you get out. 
By the sweat of your brow and thorns and thistles will you eat your bread. Work is going to be frustrated. It is not a, 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 recipro a reciprocal relationship where you get in what you put out. You're not getting in more than you put out, that's for sure. What this story is telling us is that it's going to be frustrated. It's going to be difficult. It's, going to be, uh, it's not going to produce the amount of work that you put into it. And I think this comes out in a couple ways for us as humans, I, I, especially for me. I know this is true. Uh, number one, we don't want to work. Like, it's just frustrating. So we don't want to work. And, and I'm going to be so honest with you. This is where uh, my life lives. I'm like, do we have to work? Like, I'm not totally bought into this. Do you know how frustrating work is? And so I have uh, oftentimes done a lot of things to try to get out of work. Though I've worked since I've been about 10 years old. I was a paper boy. I worked at Papa Murphy's. I worked at Subway. I worked at movie theater. I've worked everywhere. Washed logging trucks. I've always worked, but I've never liked it and always wanted to not do it. Yeah? So I've come up with a few, I've come up with a few jokes over the years. Here's one. The real American dream is inheriting money from a relative you've never met. I think that's true. <laughs> right? Like... Like, I would be sad if it was somebody that I knew that died, but, like, if I was the next of kin and they didn't have any kids and it was, like, a long-lost uncle and they just dropped a couple million in my pocket, I'd be like, okay, this is it. This, I think the second American dream, and I'm not, this is not a judgment by anyone, this is a judgment by myself, that, like, I would slip and fall in the grocery store, like, not hard enough to, like, hurt myself long-term, but, like, get a good settlement, kick back. I'm just, I'm being real with you all. Is that okay? My grandmother used to say, be a surveyor. They make good money for doing little work, and they're outside all the time. And I got to tell you, I don't, she doesn't know what a surveyor does. I don't know, I still don't know what a surveyor does. But in her mind, they were like, I don't see them working that hard. They got like a tripod. It's like, she was like, try to do that. Um, this is where my family comes from. My joke in college was, can I major in retirement? And it got very little jokes from my professors, but I thought it was funny. I was like, can I just jump straight to there? They were like, absolutely not. The other side of frustrated work that comes out of this is that sometimes we can, we can do it too much, right? We can work ourselves to exhaustion. We can try to make it our identity, or we can even make it a salvation. Like, we can... I mean, there's work salvation theology, but also, like, if we just work hard enough, everything's going to be okay. Like, work is the thing that's going to save us, right? So, so you could go my way, or you could go this way. I was just reading this article. It's called the, the, the I don't know the full title, but it's about the religion of workism. Um, this guy has this, he says, there's a decline of traditional faith in America. And he talks about all these things. Uh, essentially, he says there's new atheisms. We get out of a traditional religion, but we put our hope in different things. He says some people worship beauty. Some people worship political identities. Others worship their children, but everybody worships something. And workism is among the most potent of these new religions. Workism is a belief that work is not only necessary to economic production, but also the centerpiece of one's identity and life's purpose. Homo industrious. This is from the Atlantic. This isn't some religious author writing this. Homo industrious is not new to the American landscape. It goes on and on. And he says, uh, as far as um, our country, no large country in the world as productive as the United States averages more hours of work per year. The gap between the U.S. and other countries is growing. 
by, you know, we work longer hours, have shorter vacations, get less uh, in unemployment, disability, retire benefits, and retire later than people in comparably rich societies. We work hard here. Uh, it was something like 54% of Americans don't take any or all of their vacation. I mean, we just, we don't see not working as an option for lots of, I mean, me, I'm still hoping to be a surveyor, like a second career. But some of us work, we go the other way with work. It's, it's frustrating, but we see some results, and so we pour our whole selves into it. And that can also be dangerous. This is the bad news. These are some of the ways we can face work. And if we don't figure this out, it's a third of our life. It could get really frustrating for us. Here's the good news. You know how I preach head, heart, hands. And so uh, first, uh, we're going to talk about something that God wants us to know. Second, we're going to talk about something that God wants us to experience. And third, we're going to talk about something that God wants us to do. And so the first thing I think God wants us to know when it comes to work, especially coming from this Genesis story, is that you were made to work. You were made to work. We saw that in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. I talked about it. I could do it again. Of course, the first word to us is covenant, connection, relationship, closeness. God creates us in God's own image. We are a reflection of God. And even our work, even the work that God has for us is related to that. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and master it. What God is asking us to do is take God's divine image and spread it across the face of creation. But we were made to work immediately. Genesis chapter 2, he takes the human, and even though God is the one who works, God puts us in the garden to farm it and to take care of it, and this is called the original command or the original mission. We were made to work. It's there in the beginning. One of the remarkable things about this passage, this account, is that it all takes place before the fall. It all takes place before sin enters the world, and so... What we can say is that work isn't a result of sin or the fall. That's what I need to know. Maybe you don't need to know that. You're like, yeah, work is great, James. Me, I'm like, feels pretty sinful. My body doesn't enjoy this. Work isn't a result of sin or the fall. It's part of God's original design for us. But Genesis paints a contentious picture. There's two aspects of this, right? He wants us to know that work can be amazing and that you are working with God to spread God's image across the face of the earth. In the Old Testament, that was by having babies and having families. In the New Testament, in Jesus, that's by making disciples, go into all the earth making disciples we, because God's family and Jesus are those who hear and obey the word of God. I, I could get into that all day, but either way, we're still on mission, that same kind of work about helping creation experience the full image of God. But also Genesis tells us that it can be frustrating at the same time. Work can be amazing and it can be frustrating and oftentimes it's both at the same time. So if things are hard, uh, maybe you're in a Genesis 3 moment of your life where it's thorns and thistles and you're just not sure. Or if things are going well, you're in a Genesis 1 and 2 and you're just like getting into that creative divine spark that you were made in and things are going well. But I, oftentimes it'll be both. Sometimes it'll be one or the other. Uh, and Genesis wants us to know, like the very first pages of the Bible want us to know that this is absolutely the reality that we live in. 
This is work. And if we don't know that, if we don't have this knowledge, then it can get frustrating. It reminded me of this song um, from Fiddler on the Roof. Do you guys know? Tevier. I only gave you like 30 seconds of it, but here you go. Feel free to dance. If I were a wealthy man, I wouldn't have to work hard. Lord, who made the lion and the lamb, you decreed I should be what I am. Would it spoil some vast eternal plan? If I were a wealthy Steps and done. So first off, I'm watching this, and he's like, the whole song is about he's a poor man, and it's by God's design, and God created poor people, and he's got a, a theology that I don't have. But then he's flexing on me with this three-story barn and like a couple cows and horses, and I'm like, I would love to have your three-story barn, man. That goes for like 280000 in California. <laughs> I couldn't even get insurance on that in this. Uh, but okay, I'll take your word for it. Um, <laughs> but his theology there was a lot like mine, that like, uh, that like he's poor, and somehow the God who made the lion and the lamb would interrupt some divine cosmic plan if I were a wealthy man, and if I were a wealthy man, I wouldn't have to work hard, right? Like that. that's my thinking, right? That like... Uh, Working hard is somehow not what God intended for us, and uh, wealth, I don't know, either is from God's blessing or so, some kind of cosmic plan that God has to give wealth to certain people. And again, I don't have time to go into all this, but uh, oh, he said, you decreed what I should, what you decreed I should be what I am, and if I were a wealthy man, I wouldn't have to work hard. That is not at all the theology we get from Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Everybody has been called to work hard. And it could be fruitful, and it could be rewarding. And, and I don't think God created some stratification about who's poor and who's rich and who needs to suffer and who doesn't. Like, I, I'm not at all sure that that's the theology that we need to take away from this. If anything, the sin, the fall that is in us all has caused us to say that there's some work that's more important than the other, than other work. And maybe some people should be poor and some people should be rich. But at the end of the day, the theology, the thing that God wants us to know that we were made to work, that God has work for us. It was part of the original plan. It comes before the sin of the fall, and that is part of who you are. You, you, Pastor James, need to work. Um, second point that God wants us to know in our heart, feel, experience, is that you are called to work. It is a calling. Uh, go on this journey with me. It's going to take us a minute to get there. Uh, here's the verse that I'm using, Ephesians 2.10. Instead, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works that God had planned beforehand for these good works to be the way that we live our life. Do you see? You were made to work. Jesus made us. There's this creation element. And in, in making us, he makes us to, to work. 
and he planned them all beforehand, and, and it's supposed to be the way that we live our life. There's a calling aspect to here. Not only were we made to work, but Jesus has called us into work. And that work is meant to be good, creative, meaningful, and purposeful. That we, and I believe every one of us can find that. Now, I think every job has rent to pay. I, what I mean is there's going to be every part of every job that you're not going to like, right? Uh, maybe maybe. 80%, I don't know what it is, maybe 20%, 30% is the goal to get to. But I think at the end of the day, we could all find meaningful work that is good, it's creative, it's purposeful. But as I was thinking about this, about you being called to work, I was thinking about some of the transitions that have happened in Christian history. During most of Christianity, uh, this was the way the world worked. The Pope on top was the, the chief, the, the vicar of Christ, uh, Christ uh, lived vicariously through him. And then he's got his cardinals, his bishops, his priests, the deacons, and then I guess the people at the bottom. But underneath the Pope was the king. The king ruled. The king fought. The king protected. And with him, he has his royal folks and his knights and his armies. And then there's the rest of us on the bottom. And this is the way it worked in most of Christendom for most of time. Certainly not all societies, but most of it looked like this. And they believed that there were higher callings, that God ordained where you were, that God called you to be down here, God called you to be up here, God called you to be up there. And, and they, the goal was to try to rise through the ranks if you could, but ultimately accept where you landed. But maybe you could move up. So a lot of times what happens if your first son, there's called a law of primogeniture or primogeniture. Your first son took over your whole property and your job and all any titles that you had, if you had any. They got those. And they got everything. So if you're a second son, you had to figure out something to do. And in this culture, in medieval Europe, what your second son usually did was went to the church to become some kind of monk or priest or something because it was a high calling. I mean, you didn't get the inheritance of your family, but you got to go do education. You got to be. If you were a third son, likely you went to the military and tried to rise to the ranks that way. And if you were a fourth son, you just had to figure stuff out. Good luck. Like... <laughs> Take up a trade. If you're a daughter, light your, goal, your options were go be a nun or marry somebody and try to marry somebody who could get as much land or title that they could get, right? And then what happens in the 1500s is this man, doesn't he just so look so sick of everybody's stuff already? This is Martin Luther. He started the Protestant Reformation by criticizing the church. And, and he had all these things that he wanted to criticize, 95 of them to be precise. But one of the things he wanted to question was this divine order, this higher calling, the stratification of jobs and work and family life. And he says all of that is garbage. And he reads this verse, 1 Peter 2. You are being made into a holy priesthood to offer us offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Peter's writing this to the church. You are a royal priesthood, a chosen people, a holy nation, a people who are God's own possession. Martin Luther comes up with this phrase. He says, it's the priesthood of all believers. There's no priests. There's no higher calling. We're all priests. We're all royal priests. You have, a, you have a calling in the church equal to everybody else. That's why you don't call me priest or father. We do pastor here, right? I'm not any more of a priest than you are. 
We are equals. Equal, e- each of us, a priest. James, where are you going with this? Well, let's keep going. This meant two things. One, we're all priests. I just said that. You're a priest. I'm a priest. We all represent Jesus in our space and place. And the second thing that that meant immediately, like people started revolting. It was such good news. Is that any job can be sacred. Any job, any job can be sacred. And I don't know if we believe that. I don't know if we believe that. We're going to talk about that here in a minute too. But this is what the people took it to mean. What does that have to do with the point, James, that there's a calling? When Martin Luther comes and disrupts the whole church, he says there's no higher or lower callings. There's no higher, there's no stratification. You're not striving to get here. You're not, you're not trying to avoid this. He says, we're all priests. Any job can be a calling because Jesus has a place for you to be Jesus in that place as a priest. And your work is a call. It has meaning and it has purpose. So not only were you made to work, but in how we understand what God is doing in this place, Largely because Martin Luther just chopped the legs off of medieval stratification and hierarchy. Is that your job can be sacred wherever it is. Your job can be holy. Because you are there as a priest, as a representative of Jesus, spreading good news and being a kingdom agent there. There is no higher or lower calling. You're not striving to be a monk or to get all the family's inheritance or try to rise to the ranks of the military so that you can get some kind of honor or prestige. You are a royal priest right now. God declares it over you, not by anything that you've done. You've not earned it. God has declared it over you by his own grace. And your work, wherever you are, can have meaning and purpose as a call from God. How do we do that? How do we make it meaningful and purposeful? How do we make it a calling? Uh, I was reading a Pew research, like half of Americans say that their job is a career and half of Americans say that it's a stepping stone or just a way to make a living. And I don't know how to make sense of all that about our attitudes towards jobs, but there's a way theologically, scripturally, biblically that we can take our job that we have and we can make it a calling. How do we do that? What does God want us to do? God wants us to work for Jesus. Work for Jesus. We just said, that doesn't mean getting a job at a church. That means taking where you are and doing it for Jesus. Colossians 3, 23 through 24 says, Whatever you do, do your work from the heart for the Lord and not for people. You know that you will receive an inheritance as a reward. You serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever you do, whatever you do, Whatever you do, do it for Jesus from your heart, not for people. Very specifically says that. And then Paul takes this phrase about receiving inheritance. This is, a, this is an Old Testament phrase. It has to do with promised land stuff. He's saying like, yeah, you'll get paid. That's good. You'll get a paycheck from so-and-so, but you work for Jesus, and your ultimate goal is this inheritance, this reward, because you ultimately serve Jesus. How do you turn your job that you, you, know, you were made to work, how do you funnel that into a, a career or a job uh, that has purpose and meaning, uh, you do it for Jesus. 
You want to turn your job into a calling, do it for Jesus. You want to add purpose and meaningfulness to it. Work as though you work for Jesus and make your reward that kingdom inheritance. I'm not sure, though, that we believe some of this. I think if you lined up any five people in this room next to me and you asked which one of them is doing God's work, our inclination is to be like, well, obviously, James, he's cool, handsome. You line them up next to us, right? But that's not what the Bible says. Whatever you do, you can do it for Jesus. Those who work from the heart for the Lord work for Jesus. And, and let me, and like I said, most of us, I'm not sure we believe this. Most of, I'm not sure. And I can also tell you this. Lots of pastors aren't working for the Lord. I think sometimes they're working for themselves or for paychecks, right? But I also know lots of uh, baristas, cab workers, grocery store clerks, contractors who are working for the Lord. We can turn any calling into meaningful, purposeful work if we do it for Jesus. My last verse that I like to use when I think about work comes from um, 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 is this massive massive chapter in the Bible. It's about 58 verses, and it's dense, and it's thick, and the whole thing is about what's going to happen when Jesus comes back. It outlines what the gospel is. It outlines what's happening next, and it goes over and, uh, it goes over, and over about uh, what resurrection is, that we're going to get new bodies. They're going to be changed. They're going to be transformed. And what Paul means by that is, is that it's going to be fundamentally different, but it's still going to be you. It's still going to be tangible. And he, he says, not all of us will die, but all of us will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. And he says, these new bodies will be incorruptible and imperishable, and they will not fade. And then at the end of all of that, at the end of all of that, he says, the last verse, as a result of all of this, my loved brothers and sisters, you must stand firm, unshakable, excelling in the work of the Lord as always, because you know that your labor isn't going to be for nothing in the Lord. And you're like, you just told us about resurrected bodies that are unperishable, unfaithful, they cannot break, die, get sick, and that's how you want to end this thing? Like, as a result of all of this, you want to talk about work? But what he's saying is that there's some way in which we can take the things that we do, the jobs, the works, the, our day-to-day making a living, and we can turn it into a calling, and then there's some way that we, whatever we do in there, it enters into the stream of eternity, and it goes on forever. Your labor isn't going to be for nothing. It's not going to be in vain. I, I'm blown away that that's the turn of phrase that he wants to take at the end. Also, how... How does it go forever? How is our labor not in vain in this whole grand scheme of eternity? He doesn't tell us, and I don't know. But I have some guesses, right? Your work can be purposeful and meaningful when you do it for Jesus. And it it can last forever. I gave you my joke. It's on here too. How does that happen according to Paul? He doesn't say. I don't know either, but I have some guesses. And my guesses are like, I, I, I used to work with a barista in Seattle, I was a barista at a moment. Um, I didn't like the word barista, so I called myself a brorista just to, like, make it a little more masculine. 
And, uh, and here I was going to school to be a, a pastor. I was going to school to learn how to, to do holy things. And we were talking, and, and she went to church, and she loved Jesus. And she said uh, something that was profound for me. She just said, when I'm, when I'm in the right frame, I try to pray for everybody who I make a drink for. And she says, it gets hard when there's rude customers or it gets busy. But I just, I just try to say a prayer for them, even just a breath prayer. And I was like, she is doing this for Jesus, and I'm doing this to minimize my student loan payments, right? That transformed the way that I thought about work, seeing her do something in a holy way, even though it was an everyday thing. And I think that's what Paul's talking about. That if we can, based on our daily interactions with the coworkers or the customers or whatever it is that we do, if we can know and keep in mind that they have eternal weight, that these people go on forever, the way that we treat them as neighbors rather than consumers, that, that will go on forever. That's not in vain. And the way that we do our work for Jesus has lasting, meaningful, purposeful impact. Any questions? I got a lot of texts, but I'm not sure they were for this sermon. Send them if you got them. I think I just answered somebody's question, but somebody asked, like, give me, help me when I go to work on Monday. How should I do my job differently if I'm doing it for Jesus? I, hopefully I just answered that. I'm going to give you the same answer. But I think well, my hope is that these three points will help guide that, that, that we don't have to go to work begrudgingly because we know that there's something about God's creation in us that made us work. There's a divine spark, a creative thing about God that is in us. And so I would encourage you to pray, journal, meditate, think through what it means for you in that. What is that creative part of you that God is drawing out? But also uh, try to figure out a way to turn it into a calling. Try to turn it, figure out a way to turn it into meaningful purposefulness. And maybe it begins by seeing consumers as neighbors. Um, and if you want, I'll just, I can keep praying for you and we can keep dialoguing about that. Now let me give you some caveats and we'll be done. I'm not telling you to never quit your job. I, what I don't want you to take away from this is you're like, Pastor James says I need to turn this into a calling and I hate this. And I want to be done yesterday. I'm not telling you to never quit your job. Not at all. would never tell you that. Um, I, I'm saying some other things. Uh, and, and the reason I'm not telling you to quit your job is because this kind of theology has been used for evil in the past. It's been used to keep people down. It's been used to keep people in their place, according to what that time said your place was. It, it, it was meant to keep people in their place and told them to be happy about it and try to keep people from rising up. And I, I'm not saying any of that. I'm, I'm saying, like, feel free to quit your job. <laughs> but what I'm also saying is that wherever you are, be all there. And figure out a way to make that about Jesus 
instead of whatever it is else that we make that about, whether it's begrudging or it's a paycheck or it's a salvation or it's identity, all those things, right, can get messed up. And also in work, I never talked about rest. And rest is such a huge part of work. We need healthy rhythms of rest. And we need to work from our rest and not for our rest. And I can give you a hundred scriptures about why this is important, including what we read about in Genesis, that God creates us. And then the very next day is the day of rest for humanity. The first day that we're alive in this account is rest. And John 15 will tell us that we need to abide in Jesus and rest. And it's from there that we can be fruitful. But you're not earning rest. That's what, that's what the world tells you. If you work enough, we'll give you some vacation. God tells you that you rest first and you work from that. But like you said, all I'm saying, summary, is that wherever you are, be all there. Be Jesus there and do it for Jesus there. What God wants us to know is that you are made for work. With your heart, what God wants you to experience, that can be a calling. You were called to work. And with your hands, Jesus wants you to work as though you're working for Jesus. And that's what I would love for you to do is the spiritual practice this way. I would love for you to pray for the people that you interact with this week while you're at work. Whether it's your super terrible co-workers who make life extra hard, or it's customers, whether pleasant or rude. I don't know your situation, but I'd love for you to bring, at least in a small way, prayer into that situation. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you that we can think about something that is a part of all of our lives, but maybe we don't always talk about it, church. And I pray that these things, these stories, your Genesis account, your command that we work for you and not for people, I pray that we can take that and begin to shape the work that we already do to add meaning and purpose to it, to add meaning to this thing that we feel like sometimes we have to do, or to set it as a right priority in our life, that it's not identity, and it's not salvation, and it's not a thing that I have to give all of myself to all the time to the point of exhaustion. But ultimately, that you are in the midst of this, and that what we do could be sacred if we give it to you. Father, now as we come to this time of communion, would your Holy Spirit be in us and on us? Would you meet us here as you have promised to do? And we will come with hearts expectant and anticip- with anticipation. We pray now that as we come that this, this bread and this juice would be spiritual nourishment for our bodies. And that we would leave a little bit different than we came. A little bit closer to you a little bit closer to one another. And Table Church, would you pray with me the Lord's Prayer, saying, Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, 